Good morning. As Pastor Eric said earlier, my name is Alden Groves, and it is a pleasure to be with you here again this morning, uh, here on this last day of the year. And I didn't clear this with Pastor Eric, but since you guys don't have an evening service, I thought I would just preach through till midnight and we could ring in the new year together. Um, I'm kidding, of course. I'll be preaching this morning from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 20, which is the sending out of the 72, if you're familiar with this story. Uh, You can find it on page 868 in the Blue Bibles if you're using those in your pews there or whatever page it's on in your own copy. And although we are at the end of the calendar year here, I'm dropping us kind of right into the middle of Luke's gospel with this story. And I know there's always a little bit of of sort of dissonance when a guest preacher comes in, but I want you to know that that I've chosen this particular passage for this particular Sunday with, with care and intention. Here's why. Because this particular Sunday, it it falls sort of in an interesting place in both the church and secular calendars, doesn't it? As you all know, this past week was Christmas. And I don't have to remind any of you, I don't think, that tomorrow begins a new year. In other words, we just celebrated with particular focus the first coming of Christ. And many of us are looking ahead with, with personal focus. What will this next year hold for us? Well, I'm convinced that here in the sending out of the 72, Christ gives us a foretaste of how he intends his kingdom to go forth until he comes again, whether that be tomorrow, next year, or many years yet. So, if you will, prepare your hearts and hear now about the king and his kingdom, here in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and village where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For the, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. 
And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is the word of our God. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, great King above, thank you that we have gotten recently to celebrate with special focus the reminder of your first coming as a helpless child and yet King of the universe. O Lord, we stand between that point and your coming back as the great conquering King. I pray this morning that you would pierce our hearts with this word, that we would leave here convicted, humbled, encouraged, and lifted up, ready to go forth in your name. Lord, we pray this weak, but in the hope and power of Jesus' name. Amen. As I said at the start, I, I know I'm plunging us into the middle of Luke's gospel here, so let me give just a little bit of brief context for, for where we are. And if I could sort of summarize the first few chapters of Luke, I would say Luke is, is showing us, demonstrating Jesus' total authority. He comes in as this helpless child, and then he demonstrates Jesus' power and authority really over kind of the five things that scare us most in this life, over sin and over Satan and his forces, over sickness and disease, over natural disasters, and ultimately over death itself. Luke is showing us up to this point, the king is here, do not miss it, and nothing can stand in the king's way. And then as we move a little closer to, to our passage, which I just read for us, the, the intensity kind of ratchets up. With Jesus' previously sort of private ministry going, going very public in the feeding of the 5,000, until finally the power of the king grows so intense that his future glory bursts through for one instance in the transfiguration. And the picture that Luke paints of Christ and his power, it is so intense on the page, we should practically have to look away to keep from being blinded. The king is here. Luke tells us. He's come to cast out our darkness and to conquer evil. And of course, this was good news then, and it's good news now. But in order for us to understand just how good this good news is, we have to understand the depths of the problem we actually face in this world. How often, how often do we actually consider the reality of how far the curse of sin has actually gone in this world. I want you to think back to creation. What does God first tell Adam and Eve to do at the very beginning? He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, God calls them to take the good of the garden and to transform the rest of the world to be like it. Adam and Eve, they're commanded to Edenize the earth, if you will. But what happens instead? Adam and Eve, our first parents, and we in them, they sin and they fall. And in Genesis 3.17, we read that all of the ground is now cursed because of the fall. In other words, instead 
of goodness and beauty transforming all of the earth. No, instead the curse was dispersed over the entire earth. Really, this, this is our problem. Since the fall, the curse of sin corrupts every corner of everything. You watch the news. Surely, this past year, we've seen plenty of the curse covering the earth, haven't we? But if you're honest with yourself, it's not just the out there sin, is it? What about the brokenness in your own hearts and homes? What about the marriage that looks like the missile-cratered wasteland you see across the ocean on the news? What about the family members you don't talk to anymore? What about the pressure to give in to just the the, the simple sins of, of fitting in in little ways, whether that's tearing other people down when they're not around to defend themselves, laughing at crude jokes, looking just a little too long at him or at her until the look turns into a longing and a daydream and the imagination of a different life that could be. We don't need a TV or a news broadcast to show us sin in this world. We need a mirror and a megaphone that will broadcast the thoughts of our own hearts. But friends, it is to deal with this everywhere, even in our own hearts, curse of sin, that Jesus comes bringing his kingdom. And you see the significance of when he announces his kingdom. That's not just a random phrase he picks. No, he's saying, as prophesied, I have come to conquer evil and retake this world for good because it is mine. And Luke has demonstrated Christ's kingly power throughout the gospel. But don't forget, every king has subjects. And today we see our king equip and deploy his people into battle, in his name, to battle the curse as well. And really, that's, that's the simple main point of our sermon. Just as Jesus here sends these 72 to advance his kingdom as far as the curse is found, just so we, Christ's church, must go out, sent in his name, to share the good news of grace with the world. Or if I can simplify that for you, just as Christ sends the 72, just so he sends you, to proclaim his kingdom in his name. Just as he sends the 72, so he sends you to proclaim his kingdom in his name. And we're going to look at this idea of sending uh, as our focus today. Specifically breaking, our down, our, breaking down our passage in terms of the, the who, the what, and the why. Who is it that's involved in this sending? What are they actually sent to do? And why are they sent to do this? So here in our passage on sending, we want to ask who, what, and why. And first, let's consider together this who. And I hope you still have your Bibles open, because we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3 in this section. And and even this who, I want to break into three categories. Because the reality is, in any sending, you have a sender, you have a sent, and you have a sent to. And we see all of those. Look with me at verse 1 again. Let me read it for us. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. You see here in our first verse these three categories. The Lord, that is Jesus, sends. 
The 72 are sent out, and they are sent to every town and place where Jesus himself was about to go. So let's look at these in order. First, I want to consider the one who sends, Jesus himself. And one of the first and most remarkable things to me in this passage is actually so simple and obvious, we can kind of miss it and rush right past it, even though it's here in verse 1. And it's this simple fact. The fact that Jesus sends at all. Why would Jesus, the mighty Lord, the the coming king, bother to send anyone else to do this work? Why would he send these 72? Why involve them? But actually, I think it gets even more interesting. Because look at verse 2. What else do we see about the sender? He tells the 72, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. And then what does verse 3 tell us immediately afterward? Jesus says, behold, I am sending you out. You see what this means. Christ tells them to pray earnestly to him, and then he immediately begins answering that prayer while, or maybe even before, it's on their lips. Isn't that amazing? I mean, Luke shows us how integral prayer is to the kingdom going forth. And he shows us something of the mystery of prayer here as well. Because what's the reality of prayer as you've experienced it? There's this beautiful tension, right? The power of regeneration, of kingdom growth. It is God's and it's God's alone. Strictly speaking, he does not need a single one of us to execute his plans. And yet, he chooses to involve us in the process. Not just for show, but truly. And here he commands these 72, pray earnestly for laborers to go into the harvest. And then he commands them to go because he has chosen to work his power through his people and his prayer. Not because he has to, but because he chooses to. And I'm not sure, but I think he does this at least in part because he's concerned about our hearts as well. Have you ever considered that? When Jesus sends you by prayer into the world to engage with the world, to try to convert the world, he's not just focused on the people out there. He actually wants to do something in your heart as well in that process. But far too often we overlook the stunning wonder that we are called to pray at all, that our prayers really reach the Lord and that he really chooses to use them. The great sender calls his people to pray and go, and to go and pray. One last key thing about our sender here before we move on. Jesus, in verse 1, says that he is sending them to every town and place where he himself is about to go. Now surely everyone in this room, no matter how old you are, from the youngest age, has had someone, whether a boss, a friend, a parent, a spouse, ask, maybe even demand you do something that you know they would never, ever do themselves. Do you know that our King Jesus, he never asks us to go where he himself is not willing to go as well? Is that a comfort to you this morning? Actually, it's even better than that. We're going to see in the end today, the truth is he has already gone to the hardest and worst places before us. That when he sends us to go, he goes with us by his Spirit. And even here, look at this simple comfort. He sends his followers out two by two. 
Friends, we are not meant to go it alone in the Christian life. So Jesus is the one who sends, but who is it that gets sent in our passage? Well, of course, the obvious answer is the 72, but who are these people? Well, if you look back at the opening two words of our passage, we read, after this. After what? Well, if you have your Bibles open, just peek back. At the end of Luke chapter 9, Jesus delivers his famous, or perhaps infamous, cost of discipleship speech. He has just proclaimed how immensely difficult it will be to follow him, how it will cost everything if you do. So the first thing, one of the few things we know about these 72 is that they heard the cost of following Jesus and they stuck around. When was the last time you really weighed Christ's words about what the cost of discipleship really is? Can I give you some homework for the new year? Go reread Luke chapter 9, what the cost of discipleship really is. These 72 have sacrificed much to follow their Lord because they're convinced that he's worth it. Are you? I mean, are, are you really? Because isn't it ironic how much effort we put into making our commitment to Christ as painless, as cost-free, as comfortable as possible? Guess what? That is not what it looks like to follow him. Can I tell you, if you are looking for a comfortable life, stop coming to church. Following Christ is a dangerous calling indeed. And if you don't believe me, look at verse 3 of our passage, where we read that Jesus sends the 72 out as lambs in the midst of wolves. In other words, follow me, Jesus says. It will cost you everything, and I will send you out to be devoured. Are you really ready to follow Christ here in this new year? Jesus is the great sender. He sends these 72 out. But who are these wolves that he's sending them to? Well, verse 1 is pretty vague. It just says every town and place where Jesus himself was about to go. But the rest of our passage is about to get very, very specific. These wolves are the citizens of Chorazin, of Bethsaida, verse 13, of Capernaum, verse 15. In other words... These are real people, real citizens of real historic towns. This is not a fable or a made-up story. These people actually see Jesus do incredible miracles, feeding the 5,000 in Bethsaida, casting out demons in Capernaum. Can you imagine? How could anyone's heart be hardened in the face of that? And yet, are we so very different Final word on these wolves, these sent to ones. These are also the very harvest that Jesus speaks of in verse 2. Can I be honest with you this morning? In all this whole passage, this is the hardest thing for me to believe. It's not the, the mighty works of healing, the casting out of the demons. No, it's this little phrase, the harvest is plentiful. Does it feel plentiful to you? I look around. It's, it's easy to see the wolves, right? But I struggle to have eyes to see a plentiful harvest around me. Yet that is how Jesus describes the one he sends them to. In fact, it's how he describes them first. And that actually matters a lot. Do you know why? 
You see the difference? Have you felt the difference in your own life? You see, when you see people around you as wolves first, before a harvest, you tend to do the exact opposite of what this passage commands. You pray for yourself rather than for other people. Lord, Lord, protect me first. You entrench in your own enclave rather than obeying the call to go out into the world, into the harvest. And if I can put it simply to you this morning, let me ask, do you view the people around you first through the lens of fear or through the lens of love? Jesus admits these people will be wolves to devour you, but he calls them a harvest first. How does the order go in your heart? It matters very, very much how we treat and view the people to whom we are sent. In any mission, the actors are critical. We have to understand the who, sender, sent, sent to, if the mission is ever going to be successful. And with this who firmly in our minds, I want to turn now to the substance of the mission, the what. What are these guys actually supposed to go do now? And for this section, I want us to focus on verses 4 to 16, a long chunk, and we're going to do a little bit of a flyby. But this is where Jesus lays out the details of what he expects these 72 to accomplish and how he expects them to carry out this mission. And he gives this series of a number of commands, including some strange ones. Happy to talk to you more about any of those you have questions about afterwards. For the sake of time, we're not going to dwell on each of those uh, in great detail, but I just want to summarize kind of the the big ideas behind these commands here. Uh, First, Jesus' mission requires serious prayer. Pray earnestly, verse 2 says. It it requires an active response. Go, it says in verse 3. This mission requires faith because it says don't take extra resources with you in verse 4. This mission is urgent. Don't even stop to greet anybody on the way there, it says in verse 4. This mission is not for personal gain. Don't go house to house. Don't go looking for other meals you could get at someone else's place, verse 7, verse 8. This mission is meant to bless. Heal the sick is the command in verse 9. And finally, this mission clearly requires speaking, proclaiming. Three times the 72 are commanded to say a specific message in this section. So if I can kind of summarize all of that sort of big list of commands, I would say it's pray, go, do, say. Pray, go, do, say. And I want to look especially closely at those last two, do and say, with verse 9 as kind of our, our cornerstone here. Let me read that for you again. Heal the sick in it. In other words, in in each town they're sent to. Heal the sick in each town and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. In other words, Jesus commands these two things. Deeds, heal the sick, and words, say, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And I don't think I can overstate the importance of Jesus sending his people out on a mission of both deed and word here. Because it is so easy to overemphasize one of those, almost at the exclusion of the other. Maybe you're, a, you're an all-words person. But do you remember the picture that James gives in chapter 2 of his short and yet incredibly weighty book when he says this, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you say to them, Go in peace, be warmed and well-fed, Happy New Year without giving them the things for the body, 
What is the good of that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. These are strong, strong words over which much ink has been spilled for thousands of years. But let me ask you this morning, does your faith have a heartbeat? Or does it tend to flatline? Do people look at your life and say, well, I heard what you said, but I see that it's really true by what you do. Our own deeds can never save us, can never save anyone around us, but they're not irrelevant either. Here in verse 9, healing is what Jesus commands, and it's not just a nice thing. It is actually, it's, it's the proof positive of the words being true, that, that the kingdom being near is a reality. The fact that he commands them to do these good deeds is this proof positive of the reality of the words being spoken. Remember, Jesus came to conquer the curse as far as it is found. He came to bring his kingdom and overturn that curse for all time. And the mighty deeds of these 72, they demonstrate the reality of the kingdom come near. But verse 9 says both heal and say. And maybe you're on the other side. Maybe you're a deeds person. Maybe you like to live by the quote, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Probably you've heard this one before. It's usually attributed to Francis of Assisi, but, it, but I looked it up, and it's actually a misattribution. He said something sort of like it, but, but not exactly. Um, and more than that, it is biblically false as well. Words are essential to the kingdom. When Jesus tells them to say the kingdom has come, we know from other places in scripture that this really means repent and believe the gospel. In other words, Christ is saying, go and preach the gospel even as you do these good works. Because deeds don't matter without words. Why not? Why isn't it good enough to just heal, to just serve someone and call it a day? Why can't these 72 just go set people free from demonic torment and go home happy, feeling like they've done something to make the world a better place? They can't do that because it's not enough. If these people are healed once, they will die again. If they're set free from demonic torment, they're still enslaved to sin. They're in the wrong kingdom. They still stand condemned before a holy God of Scripture. We don't like to talk about this in our culture. But I want you to look with me at verse 11 now. How does Jesus tell them to respond to the towns that reject them? And notice, he anticipates rejection. He doesn't just say, if you do this perfectly, everyone will listen. We heard that in the Isaiah passage this morning. No, in the face of rejection, this is what he tells them to say. Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. In other words, every particle of anything associated with you, we are cleansing away. And then he says, nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. In other words, the truth of God's kingdom, the truth of the gospel, it is utterly, completely, categorically unchanged by whether or not people accept it or reject it. Deep down, we may doubt the gospel really has power to change people anymore. The harvest doesn't feel plentiful. Or maybe even worse, we doubt that it should. Isn't that imposing on other people? Can't we just heal them, make the world a better place, and let them be on their own course? 
Friends, Jesus makes absolutely clear, even though you reject me, it will not change the fact the kingdom has come near. You simply cannot hear Jesus' words and then call it love to do good deeds and walk away with your mouth shut without any words of gospel hope and truth. We should not be surprised or crushed by rejection. Acceptance should never be our main goal in this world. Even Jesus was rejected, worse than any of us ever will be. We are called to word and deed. Serve people and tell them about the kingdom. Now, to be very clear, this call to both word and deed is never a license to be unloving. Speak the truth in love, Paul says. But can we also say with Paul, whatever we do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is how the kingdom is meant to go forth, in word and deed together. We've looked at the who, we've seen the what of the mission, what they are supposed to do, and now let us turn our attention to the most important question, why? Why any of this? And I want to look on the, at the why on two levels. What's the goal? In other words, why, what should the result be? Why are they doing this? What are they hoping to achieve? And, and what are the grounds? Why does Jesus choose these 72 in the first place? And we're going to focus here on our last four verses, 17 to 20. And first, let us consider that first why. What, what's the goal of the mission? Why are they doing this? What are they meant to achieve here? Well, the goal is kingdom expansion. The goal is the power and love of the Father roaring forth through Christ, through his people, to undo and overturn the curse as far as it is found. Look with me now at verses 18 and 19. After the 72 return, successful, full of joy, listen to how Jesus responds. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Briefly, there are lots of thoughts and uh, opinions and takes on what exactly this line about Satan falling from heaven means, but there's broad agreement in the idea being this is a picture of Satan falling from his power and falling quickly. We can talk more about that if you want to know more details afterward. But this is a picture of defeat, and verse 19 shouts of this triumph, even more detailed. And I wonder if you see this. I want to show you. You remember the crucial promise given at the beginning in Genesis 3:15, when God speaks a curse to the enemy, the serpent. What does he say? He says, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, the great promise upon which history hangs is that the prophesied Messiah will crush the head of the serpent. And what does Jesus say in verse 19? I have given you authority to tread on serpents. This is victory language. This is the war cry of the kingdom going forth. Every time someone repents and believes and the harvest comes in, the enemy's power is broken and death no longer has the last word. This is the great why, the goal of this mission going forth, the kingdom advancing as far as the curse is found. And in his mysterious wisdom, God has chosen to involve his people, the church, with these 72 continuing all the way through us in that process. 
Which brings us to our last consideration. We've thought about the goal, but the final why. On what grounds are these 72 chosen? It actually says 72 others because Christ had already sent out the 12 disciples at the beginning of Luke 9. So these aren't, you know, super Christian disciples. These are 72 unnamed others. Why does Christ choose them? Well, he sends them out in verse 1 to prepare his way. And they're clearly successful if you look at verse 17. It says, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So does Jesus choose them because they're powerful super-Christians? We get our answer in verse 20, where Jesus says this. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So why? Why does Jesus choose these 72? By sheer grace alone. There's nothing special about them. They didn't deserve this remarkable experience because of how amazing they were. And he reminds them of this in verse 20. We get our final two commands of the passage here. Don't rejoice at these amazing experiences. Do rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice at power or success or amazing things. Rejoice at grace unmeasured. Friends, for those of you in Christ, why did he choose you? By his grace alone. Beware the temptation to self-righteousness. We hear the hint of it in these 72. Isn't it true that at the times of greatest success, look at verse 17, our souls are most at risk of pride and patting ourselves on the back. But with love and trembling, may I remind you of what Christ says in Matthew 7, speaking of the last day when he says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That is a terrifying parallel to our passage. Casting out demons in your name. He says, depart from me, I never knew you. Friends, do not rejoice at success or comfort or any of those things. Rejoice that the Lord would know you. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Rejoice at the grace you have been shown in Christ. But what is grace? I want to close by considering what grace really actually means. And as we've heard today, we are indeed sent out. And Jesus says in verse 3, we're sent out as lambs in the midst of wolves. But I want you to remember, Christ sent them to all the places he himself was about to go. Jesus never asks us to go where he's not willing to go himself. So when Christ, the innocent one, went to the cross on our behalf, he went as a lamb, the true Passover lamb, in the midst of the wolves of whom we used to be. And I want to bring this just a little bit closer to home because I want you to walk out of this church today with a renewed sense of the incredible, intimate, personal, powerful love of the grace of the gospel for you. Remember verse 20, Jesus commands the 72, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, rejoice your names are written in heaven. I want to show you what it means that your names are written in heaven. Have you ever had the thought, 
God, you have forgotten me. God, you've forsaken me. Where are you right now? If you've ever had that thought, I want you to hear how God responds to Israel when they say those very words. God, why have you forsaken us? In Isaiah 49, this is how he responds. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. Practically unthinkable for us as humans. Even a mother may forget her child. Yet I will not forget you, God says. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Did you hear that? You, your very name is engraved on the hands of God right now. And with Isaiah 49 in mind, I want you to hear these words from John's gospel after Jesus has been resurrected. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, notice he calls him by name, then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Have you believed because you have seen me? Friends, blessed are those who have seen and yet have, who have not seen and yet have believed. Do not rejoice in success or power or comfort. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven, engraved on the very hands of our Lord Jesus Christ, who intercedes for us before the throne. May we leave here today, may we head into the new year, sent out by Christ the King in word and deed to advance his kingdom in the world until he comes again by praying earnestly for the harvest because we have been filled filled with the love of a Savior who engraved us on his own hands on the cross and who rose again from the grave, bringing us with him to reverse the curse forever. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we confess we are people who are prone to find little joy or the wrong joy or to rejoice in prideful things and foolish things. Lord, we, we love word without deed or deed without word and we are most of all concerned with our name being up in lights being admired by other people Lord that that it would be taken on people's lips in praise of us forgive us Lord, rebuke us teach us that we are saved by grace alone that discipleship costs us everything but that grace costs you far more that we can come to the throne only by the blood of the Son poured out for us when we were yet wolves. 
Lord, I pray for any who are here today who need that encouraging reminder of what grace really is, that our names are written on your hands. I pray for any who don't know yet that truth, that you would move in our hearts, that you would strike down our sin and our pride, and that you would send us out with a message of hope for this world. Lord, we await your coming, our great King. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in your name and your power that we pray. Amen.